0: I got my start in digital marketing, per se, from being a, an attorney and a, with an acting degree and a sales career of 10 years to being a little bit of an SEO expert along the way and managing a really large team and a very substantial and growing business. That's
1: a good tool set to have in the digital space, knowing <laughs> the law, knowing SEO, and knowing some code too, to be able to uh, launch websites. So when yeah. did the trip- Welcome to the Agency X Podcast. Today, we are joined by Sean McGinnis. He is the president and integrator at Kuru Footwear. Sean has been a digital marketing leader since 2016 and has led customer acquisition and lead generation for Fortune 500 and startup companies across a breadth of products and services. Sean is currently focused on meeting the growth targets of Kuru Footwear, a rapidly scaling D2C e-commerce company focused on building stylish shoes to fight foot pain. Sean and I had a great conversation about his history in digital and e-commerce in some of the early days in the late 90s and 2000s, some companies that he started, as well as his transition into e-commerce and then eventually working at Kuru for the past three or four years and building out the team over there. We also discussed some of the challenges that he faced and just the overall landscape of D2C and e-commerce. So we really hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the Agency X Podcast. Today, we have Sean McInnes. He is from Kuru Footwear. Sean, I'll let you kind of intro yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you do at at Kuru Footwear and and we'll go from there.
0: Yeah, thanks, John. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So I run the day-to-day operation of the business. My title is president and integrator. We run on a system called the EOS system, entrepreneurial operating system. A lot of, it's been become quite popular with small D2C brands and other e-commerce players. It's based on a book called Traction. So I kind of run the day to day. I report to our CEO and visionary and founder, a guy named Brett Rasmussen, who invented the technology and founded the business back in 2008. So Kuru has been around for about 15 years now, pretty healthy track record of continuous growth and profit. We're fully bootstrapped at this point. Brett raised a small kind of friends and family around in the early days and all of those investors are no longer associated with the business. So we're fully profitable, we're
1: bootstrapped and we're growing. So the sort of story, I love bootstrapped. I love growing. And I'm curious about the EOS cause I've read traction and mm-hmm. I would say that for our agency, we've adopted a percentage of that. Like I know some business owners sure. who went all in, are you guys all in on EOS? Oh, yeah. Like you do your rocks and yep. you know, you said your CEO is a visionary. That makes sense. So you guys went all in on EOS, correct? Yeah,
0: we use a paid implementer. And in fact, I've joked with my CEO that when no one will hire me to run a business like this, that that's my next career Hmm. move is to become a paid implementer for EOS. I'm actually in, had a call with our implementer yesterday and he's going to introduce me to their their onboarding group there to start the exploration. I might actually do it more part-time in the short term, but I'm really enjoying the system. And like you, I think there's a lot of folks that kind of have dabbled or they've adopted the meeting cadence or they've adopted certain aspects of it. But yeah, we're all in. I mean, it, it's worked really well for us and we consistently get really good feedback from the senior leadership team around how aligned we feel as a group and how utilizing the rock system kind of keeps us aligned and, and making sure that we're focused on the most important things at any given point in the day or the week or the month or the quarter.
1: And was EOS integrated into the business before you started or did you... Like, how did that come about? Is that something that you brought to the table and you helped to implement? It's
0: not, no. Our CEO, he's been trying different systems for quite some time. And EOS, I think, is kind of the one that stuck. We started actually with just running our leadership meeting using the level 10 format. And we did that for about a year. And then we invited this paid implementer in. The the initial meeting is typically called a 90-minute meeting where they just kind of walk you through the system and walk you through what it's like working with a paid implementer. So I wanna say we did that about two years ago. So it was probably the, we we ran the meetings throughout most of 2020 and at the end of 2020, we brought him in probably around October and then we onboarded with him in the kind of the onboarding sessions, like Q4, I think December of 2020 as we headed in plan, plan 2021. So we went through that formal process of going through the couple of days worth of developing the, rethinking everything from our corporate values, the mission the vision of the business like where are we going how does that all fit in it's a really regimented process and it was really well worth it to kind of go through it again we wound up not changing our corporate values they were pretty pretty strong to begin with and so i in hearing him talk it's 50 50 right some companies you go through that process anew and you say oh well there's a couple things that maybe don't fit for us but yeah working with him has been great we're actually in talks now about whether we should continue with him full-time next year maybe Mm -hmm. we kind of downgrade and go okay we're going to use him for Two of our quarterly yeah. Pulse meetings, maybe do annual planning at the end of next year with him, and maybe one, one quarter in between, or whether we keep him on full-time. That's yeah. kind of the, the state that we're in. It, it very, very often happens that as you mature as an organization, you don't need to work with a, a paid implementer any longer. And so he kind of calls it graduation. It's about two to three years. You either get so good at it. Sometimes it's a budgetary kind of question of, of like, you know, do we really need to spend this money? It was very valuable for the first two or three years. So we're kind of in that reflection period now thinking about what we want to do for next year.
1: That's really interesting. And we've, like I said, we have adopted some of the aspects of EOS same, similar to you, we started with the level 10 meetings, kind of a very variation of that. We set our rocks, you know, trying to just more think of it as, especially like a mindset of thinking about right people, right seats, having certain goals that you need to focus on, I'm willing to go back and like, look at it again and see, but it's a lot of work integrating it. I know it's, it's a lot of work and. I don't think we're quite there yet to be able to shake things up that that much, but I'll let you know if we do. And if you're an integrator at that time, maybe we could work together. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been involved in the web and or e commerce since kind of the early 2000s, and so have I. So I've been around. I used to do a lot of Flash animation. If you remember Flash websites back in the day, and I do. doing things like Dreamweaver and tables with HTML and stuff like that. And it's it was basically like the Wild West of, of digital. I'm curious about some of your earlier experience when the web started to become a thing and people started to have computers in their homes in the late nineties, early two thousands. I kind of seen things change from flash to web 1.0 and web 2.0, and now it's web three or whatever's going on and e-commerce explosion. So curious about your experience there. Where'd you get started in digital?
0: You've just described my life, I think, the, the <laughs> guy
1: with the computer in his bedroom in early or late
0: 90s. So I was with Thompson Reuters in the legal space. I graduated from law school back in 94 and was selling for them and in, into the law firm space. And I left them in 97 and rejoined the firm in late 99. I want to say it was December 99. I moved across the country from Boston area to Chicago, back home where I grew up. And in those two years when I was gone, a couple things happened. They built a subsidiary that started selling websites to lawyers. So that's the first kind of interesting component. Yeah. The second interesting component is I built my first website, which was a DVD movie review website. I'm a little bit of a home theater nut. And I was one of the first couple hundred people or a couple thousand people in the country to own a DVD player back when it was brand new. Wow. Like it was the, when it sort of phased out or started to roll out. And in those early, early days, it was a little bit of a roll of the dice of whether you got a good transfer onto the DVD or not. Like the Hollywood studios were still trying to figure this thing out. And every now and then you'd get a, a print that was really crappy, filled with macro blocking, or you'd get a really beautiful you know, transfer with an anamorphic technology applied to it. It's the old kind of, there was the, the movie review itself, and then there was the, the DVD technology component of the movie review. And so I honestly started that website just as a means to build community and kind of a ploy to get free product from Hollywood. It worked. And I started with 13 terribly written movie reviews that I wrote myself. And by within two years, I had 25 guys writing for me. Oh, wow. We had several thousand movie reviews posted on the site. To your point, everything was hand-coded. I Mm -hmm. did it all on home site. Every morning I'd wake up at five in the morning and literally update the homepage by writing kind of a little bit of a a blurb about that days. And the homepage was like a thousand miles long, right? It was like a daily live journal of all the new stuff we had. It wasn't database driven, it was not searchable, Mm. it was awful. My baby sister did the design. She's now the CIO at McDonald's. Just long, long standing, weird, goofy things that, you know, and it all got done on like a $3,000 Dell that I overbought way back in the day. Of like, oh, I've got this extra money. I'm going to go buy the most powerful thing in the world. Right. (laughs) Big 19 inch CRT screen. It's ridiculous. But that's, that's how I got kind of started. Really put in a lot of time. I was an early affiliate at IGN where they were actually, they would pay us for the ability to play, put display ads on our site. And back in the day, everything was kind of a little bit more collaborative. Everybody that was in that game, you'd, you'd hang out on forums. Mm-hmm. And so it's Web 1.0, yeah. right? Built a sense of community, um, ran into guys who would visit with folks down in Florida when I was traveling for business or whatever that were not even writing for me. That was just part of that larger community. It was a real interesting sense of, this is a brave new world that we're trying to figure out together. and. It's all just about sharing the knowledge and bringing people up and making sure that they were being protected from buying a poor transfer of a DVD back in the day. Yeah.
1: And that's so interesting as far as the, like, because I remember forums being very popular in the early 2000s, late 1990s Yeah, and it's before the days of algorithms. There were no algorithms, right? Well, algorithms in general existed, but there weren't like, like Google. You could get to the top of Google with a basic SEO knowledge of just putting a couple keywords, stuff them in, into your code. And like you said, it was just a long running page. It was more of just like, you weren't trying to game any systems when it came to, Hey, we have to put X amount of content and keep it fresh. It was more so, Hey, this is just for like, it wasn't for the masses at the time, right? It was for yeah. more of people who are really into the quality of DVDs in, in yeah. your case. Right. And you found like a niche, What whatever ended up happening with that business. Did you end up being able to sell it? Did you just close it down? I
0: literally gave it away about two years later. I was like, I can't do this anymore. I want to go focus on building a career. And so the next stage, so I gave it to one of the guys that was a writer who also happened to work at a a hosting company Mm -hmm. and it operated fully functionally for another 10 plus years, I think it was 15 years before they shut it down. They expanded into games, they Mm -hmm. expanded into TV shows. There were probably hundreds and hundreds of people who had written for the business. It was kind of a little gimmicky thing that we put together because be me being a lawyer, the theme of the whole site was it was called DVD verdict. and we put mm. each disc on trial. and we wrote each movie review in the form of a court case. okay right, the opening statement, the wit the witness, the rebuttal witnesses, the closing statement and the verdict. And each movie reviewer was a judge. I mean, it was kind of cute. Everyone kind of had a gimmick back then. So when I gave that away, I turned and focused all of my attention on selling those websites to attorneys. And so, mm. I was a direct B2B sales guy, moved into a sales management role for three years. And eventually that business, we were building hundreds and hundreds of websites per month for small law firms across the country. They spun out the SEO team and were looking for a new manager and they couldn't find anyone to come in house and do it. So I had developed some skills and some knowledge and was kind of sharing with the larger 150 person sales organization. And so I came in house from Pittsburgh back to Minneapolis and led, inherited a team of 19 SEO consultants, grew that team, grew the product offering there. And that's I got my start in digital marketing per se, from being a an attorney and a with an acting degree and a sales career of 10 years to being a little bit of an SEO expert along the way and managing a really large team and a very substantial and growing business.
1: That's a good tool set to have in the digital space, knowing (laughs) the law, knowing SEO and knowing some code too, to be able to uh, launch websites. So when did the transition into e-commerce and like marketing happen for you and how did you choose or how did they choose you to join Kuru?
0: Yeah, it was about 10 years ago. So two different distinct, the first step into e-com, I remember very distinctly wanting to get away from B2B and away from legal. Like Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be the guy that Built a career only in those spaces and e-com seemed like the next if i wanted to really round out my skill set it felt like an important next step and so it turned out there was a position posted at sears and an old high school buddy of mine had put in a 20 plus year career at sears in the logistics and supply chain side. So i'm actually my old doubles partner in high school and we were in the chicago area and the title of the the role was marketing general manager okay and i'm like well i'm not really a cmo like i'm not a brand guy But I am kind of a generalist who just wants to go and do the right things and pull the right levers and grow a business. And so I interviewed there and joined, wound up joining the firm. Inside Sears, there's 20 plus different business units, very siloed and verticalized. And I ran marketing for a small, small by Sears standards business called Sears Parts Direct. So if you think about one of the biggest things Sears is known for, it's the home appliance category. And they had built a massive service organization to come into your home and repair broken home appliances, dishwashers, or refrigerators. Thousands and thousands of trucks, thousands and thousands of employees, vast, uh, huge organization with supply chain and warehouse capabilities. And this business kind of grew out of that. 15, 20 years ago, some bright young executive said, hey, we've got all these parts in a warehouse that we're sending out in our trucks for our repair people. There's this nascent movement for people to try and repair their own stuff. Why don't we sell them the parts too? What if you were brave enough to try and replace the dishwasher door handle in your own dishwasher yeah. alone? YouTube's coming up. There's how-to videos on how to do that stuff. DIYers. This business started out as a catalog business and then moved online, but we did a couple hundred million plus in revenue. Printed a very, very profitable. And so I ran the business from a marketing perspective, reporting up to a CMO that's part of a very matrixed organization, right? So was there for about three years was recruited out here into Salt Lake City about seven or eight years ago to lead marketing for a lead gen business. had a team of about 100 plus digital marketers that ran 30 different websites for 13 different home services oriented brands. And then joined Kuru almost exactly three years ago now. So I was introduced to our CEO, Brett, about four years ago, and he was trying to think through what is the plan from a marketing perspective inside the business. About a year later, we we reconnected and I wound up joining the firm as kind of VP of marketing and head of growth, took over the e-com function as well as marketing and grew the business for the last two years. We've doubled in size in terms of revenues and then along the way was promoted to CMO and then this year to president. So I take kind of hired a replacement a guy I was very familiar with, who's a great leader, who's leading that side of the business. And now I've got responsibility for HR and finance and operations and product in addition to the stuff that I kind of joined initially for.
1: Thanks. So... That's considerable growth over the past three years, doubling the team size or doubling revenue rather, growing the mm-hmm. team. What have some, been some of your biggest challenges or actually just challenges in general within the business seeing that growth? Because I know that we've grown a significant amount over the past few years and I have my own challenges. I'm sure there have been some difficulties in doing that. What has been the biggest challenge for you?
0: Yeah, I, I'm sure we're going to get into this a little bit later, that one of the biggest challenges was that the tech stack that we inherited mm-hmm. when I walked into the business about three years ago. We were on Magento 2. The biggest challenge, I think, for the business in its lifetime was the migration from Magento 1 to Magento 2 back in 2017. So it was a, a couple years of stalled growth, I'll call it. The business had grown really, really rapidly through 2017. And they made the decision to change from M1 to M2. Hmm. So the migration of Magento 2, there were a lot of decisions that came along with that. So it's hard to pinpoint just Magento 2 as the cause, but that project was not well, well run or well managed. They made a bunch of decisions to leave behind 300 pages of content that were performing Hmm. on SEO. They made the decision to change development agencies. Hmm. They changed hosting providers. They've completely changed the design and look and feel and architecture of the site, all at the same time that you're also changing the code. So
1: all of the things that really kill SEO overnight. Okay.
0: Well, and the most important thing was when things weren't going well, you didn't know where to look, Yeah. right? You weren't controlling the controllables in terms of, so with this migration that we just executed to get to Shopify Plus from Magento 2. The mandate was we're going to keep the front end look and feel as identical as possible. We kept referring to it as pixel perfect. It's not pixel perfect, but it's pretty darn close. Mm -hmm. And so we know that where there's areas that are underperforming the prior site, it has nothing to do with that thing. Now we can go look at as it is, is it related to traffic? Is it related to conversion? Is it related to a specific page? So it has helped us isolate things for the hiccups that are inevitable with a migration like this. No migration I've ever experienced goes perfectly. And so there's always open questions and we made some big mistakes. We can, again, we can get into that, but I think sure. the tech stack in general was really a limiting factor. Making changes to the site and adding new pages that are conversion-oriented like landing pages, everything was slower than it needed to be, everything. The example I use most frequently is that, and this was again a bit of a driver about why we migrated. When I came in, we were a in Magento 2.1. And 2.1 had been formally announced as being deprecated. And we were needed to migrate to 2.3. That project took 56 weeks. Wow. so over a year. <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the reasons why was because we had built our own RMA module yeah. to, to process returns rather than going and licensing something that was already in market. So we had this kind of I, I refer to it as kind of a build versus buy mentality. They had built an awful lot of things. From my perspective, e-commerce doesn't have to be hard. If you just remove friction and give people what they need to make decisions, they will make decisions in your favor and they will buy your product. Treat them as human, treat them as valued customers, And a lot of good things tend to happen when you just kind of base, focus on the basics and make sure that you've got those things covered. And so migrating to Shopify plus the whole end goal was really to almost put ourselves in a straitjacket regarding development. Like I want us to focus on just hiring best in class apps, systems, agencies, et cetera that can help us move the ball forward more quickly rather than have this uh, mentality where we're gonna go build stuff. But when we interviewed, we interviewed a number of agencies to help us with this initial migration. And one of them said something on a discovery call that I, was, I found really instructive. He said, when they move people from Magento to Shopify, the feeling is you go from being an IT business to an e-commerce business. Mm. I was like, there's, there's a lot sense. of truth in that. We spent an awful lot of time fixing bugs we introduced in the prior sprint in our development team. Yeah right? Like,
1: well, it gives you those guardrails. Yeah. So, it gives you those guardrails to kind of like, like you said, almost be in a straitjacket, but you could, you're not too constricted. You can do certain things if you need to, but I'm sure it helped cut capital expenditures, help save on the back office, save a lot of headaches. But I like that going from IT to an e-commerce company, because, you know, we've done a lot of migrations before too. And I appreciate your approach for not wanting to completely redesign the website because Many mm-hmm. times we have to battle that of, hey, we're migrating over to a new platform. We might as well do a complete redesign. We might yeah. as well change all these yeah. pages. But now you're doing 301 redirects and you're doing changing the URLs. You're changing all of the content. It could tank your SEO. And to your point, you don't know what the problem is if there is a problem when yeah. you move over. So doing it in stages is a really good idea. And how, how has that been working as far as this change from Magento. How has the team adapted to that?
0: Yeah, I'd say it's it's been a learning curve, and in parts a really good one, and in parts there there have been some frustrations. Back to the design piece, we have already begun phase two, which is to now work with a UI UX firm and another development agency. The, the plan is to completely redesign the site over the next six months, yeah. and so. This week, we're actually kicking off our first test. We're going to test into whether or not these design enhancements are actually bettering the user experience from a user perspective. So we're starting with the menu and the layout of the homepage. So those, if you come to the site within the next week or two, you might get a slightly different view. So those things are going to be executed and then we'll move into collection pages and PDP pages. And we've got a couple of different layouts we're planning to test there. So the UI UX agency is going to deliver those files and the development agency will develop them and We'll do a rigorous A-B testing to ensure that we're pulling through more revenue per visit as kind of the main KPI that we would pay attention to. The biggest thing that, that has frustrated, I think, the team, and this is a late in the game decision that we made that I would say in principle, it was a decision we would have made eventually anyway, but it would have been great to have not made it when we made it. So we made the choice to move to a server side measurement protocol through a company called Elevar. Most of your Shopify Plus partners are probably familiar with Elevar in terms of ensuring that you're getting consistent. This is really not an Elevar problem. It's really a reflection of how poorly our prior setup in GA was set up. But by moving from client side to server side, it's like comparing apples to kumquats in some respects. Like we're getting, much higher user-in-session data on a channel-by-channel channel basis. Yeah. And there might be even be some channel-by-channel channel churn and mix and change there. So it, it, we didn't keep that aspect of the measurement protocol st- static to be able to say, hey, what happened with this migration, right? We made it all at the same time. And so that, that's been really tricky for us to look at it in the dashboard and say, well, here's what's happening. Here's the channels that are up or the channels that are down. The other big part that's... Most people probably don't think about when you go through migration like this. In addition, obviously there's a risk regarding SEO for anyone that's at all experienced with this stuff. The other great risk is in your algorithmically driven paid channels, right? Smart shopping in particular, you're dealing with a different feed product ID. You're different, dealing with a different landing page URL. And the algorithm says, hey, we're starting from scratch. (laughs) Like we gotta, we don't know anything. Yeah. Like we're now a kindergartner again, where you might've had a channel that was performing really, really well. So it's been slower than I would have liked to get back to some normalcy. It's growing and it's and it's week over week, we're growing probably 10% in revenue, but we're still not quite where we were pre-launch. And so that's been a bit of a frustration for the team that's working really hard on getting those those numbers back where they belong. I'd say those are the big ones, and other than just, you know, the dashboard is different and how you get things done is different, And but it's all simpler, it's just different. And so it's a change management mission more than anything around getting the right people involved in the system so that they know how to make the changes that we need to make as we kind of grow the business and do new promotions or try
1: new things. Yeah. And speaking of marketing and things like that, have you been impacted over the last year or so about Facebook ads, Instagram ads? Is that something, is that a channel that has been affected by Apple's privacy and not being able, I know you mentioned Elevar and being able to track that data. Have you seen any decline in any of the ads, like a significant amount, or are you guys still on track from what you were doing before that iOS 14 privacy policy was released?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And one I've answered a whole bunch in dealing with other folks, the our business is unique in some respects. It was certainly unique when I joined three years ago in that even though we're a direct to consumer brand we were not spending in the way that most direct-to-consumer brands spent. Mm -hmm. So maybe it makes sense to clarify. We are a a shoe company that embeds technology that helps with foot pain, primarily plantar fasciitis and other things around the heel. And so the way that we've grown has been to focus very heartily on demand capture at the bottom of the funnel. There is massive, massive keyword volume or let's not call it massive. It's, it's material enough that that's the right place to focus if you really want to drive sales. Mm-hmm. Our primary marketing channels today are Google and Bing by a lot. Um, between SEO and organic, between paid search, between smart shopping, a lot of those things are driven by like non-branded keyword volumes around comfortable shoes for walking or comfortable shoes for nurses or shoes for plantar fasciitis. Mm-hmm. That's where we spend the bulk of our time And most other direct-to-consumer brands are spending the bulk of their time up the funnel, building awareness in more awareness campaigns and demand generation campaigns, right? They're trying to make an audience aware that they, as an alternative, or maybe there's no alternative, but hey, if you knew that liquid death was a thing, there was no market for liquid death before liquid death came on the scene, right? So you think about these CPG companies or it's a, they built the brand and they built it by Letting, you know, incredible marketing, incredible storytelling, and making people aware that it was there as an alternative, right? Mm-hmm. And as a result of that differential for us, we spent probably 10% of our marketing budget in Facebook and Instagram, where most other direct consumers, it's flipped. They're spending 80 to 90%. As Taylor Holiday talks about a lot, Facebook is probably the world's greatest business generation platform in the history of mankind in terms of being able to connect you with buyers who are interested in what you have to offer. From the time that Facebook changed the ability to target by health condition, you know, this is 2017, probably 16, 17, 18, somewhere in there, our spend and attention in that platform dough pretty hardly. So what we did last year was we engaged with Rockerbox on the theory. My question for the last three years was, are we wrong? Are we the idiots in the room that are just like, no, there's a, that's a gold mine and we're not doing it Right. And so what we really needed to do was to understand what the potential contribution of that channel could be for our business, not just for everyone else that does X or Y or Z in terms of how they spend their dollars. And so Rockerbox gave us some confidence that there was bigger opportunity out there. And so we engaged with an agency gave them full reign to go and do everything they needed to do. And we started spending money to create better ads and better content for them to be able to utilize in the channel. And the instruction to them is go, we want you to manage to a contribution profit number in that channel, grow it as ag- aggressively as we can. As long as it makes sense to keep going, we're going to manage it. So they joined before the migration and this migration has kind of slowed things down a little bit. And so that algorithm also had to be retrained and, and kind of relearn a few things, but yeah, I, I still think there's opportunity for us there. So I don't have a great comparison of we were not spending 90% of our yeah. dollar and suddenly all of our revenue fell off a cliff because.
1: A lot were. That's just not where we've been. A lot yeah. were. A lot yeah. were, were spending yeah, so much. I hear the horror stories. And yep. it was their primary channel and it got cut yep. 60, 70, 80%. And that could be detrimental to a business. It was our
0: sixth best channel yeah. at best, honestly. Co direct, email. The paid search and shopping were all bigger by a magnitude, by an order of magnitude. And so today it's about as big as our affiliate channel. We built affiliate this year pretty aggressively. And so I see opportunity in both of those channels to continue growing, frankly. So really excited with the partnership that we have built with the agency and optimistic about the future of that channel for us.
1: Great. Yeah, I mean... SEO has always worked for our agency as far as like, I was focusing on SEO when I first started the company as a freelancer, like there were keywords like freelance web designer, New York, right? I wanted to own that keyword and knock everyone off the top. And I did that. And it builds domain authority. And I felt so great mm-hmm. about it. And then when we switched over to, instead of calling myself freelancer, an agency and hiring people, having to switch that, but building that domain authority, I saw a blog post from 2012 that I wrote that are ranking today. Mm-hmm. And I just, <laughs> awesome. you know, I just searched quickly for best shoes for bunions, for example. And yeah. one of the first thing that pops up is a Livestrong article. And of course, your brand Guru is listed on there as one yeah. of those, like, I see that as being even way better than any kind of ad because it's organic. It's pretty much free. It lives there forever. And it's not like you have to continue to pay it. It basically, is, it's like almost making an investment that is compounding over time because it'll just live there forever. You don't have to spend 20000 $50,000 a month to keep pumping these ads out that are only going to be up for a certain amount of time. So I'm a big fan of of content marketing and making sure that that is done organically, but also done thoughtfully where it it makes sense for the customer. So is that something that you guys have, do you go after some of these companies to write articles for you to try to get listed or do these kind of come in organically and naturally?
0: Yeah, the answer is both. (laughs) So we absolutely focus a lot on SEO. We were impacted last October. Google launched a new uh, algorithm update and it slapped us around. And it slapped around a number of companies that had previously linked to us for free. Mm. So SEO was down, referral traffic and revenue was down year over year since October. And we had to draw down our spend to match the, the SEO. So it's kind of a double kick in the shins. This is the way I keep referring to it. We embarked on a project to rewrite all 150 pages of our kind of ranking content, mm-hmm. the, the content hub that we, that we refer to. And that was also a trigger for us to really get aggressive in our affiliate channel. So we have in our affiliate program, a number of fairly major media publications and those publications like Livestrong or Forbes is another good example or Healthline, or there's a lot of publications. Those places are, they're becoming a little bit more pay to play in some respects. So they're learning that in addition to, and there's really two sides to those businesses too, but going back to the October algorithm update, what Google decided to do right or wrong is to favor more heavily major media publications, right? We used to be for our kind of king keyword is shoes for plantar fasciitis. We used to be number two or three organically for our site. And we had three or four additional bites at the apple for people that had just listed us organically. When they made that update, that keyword belonged to Forbes. Yeah. And I think even one of the other one was like a good housekeeping article that had just linked to us as a matter of course, right? So there's the editorial sides of those businesses where they've got copywriters and people that are trying to do things divorced from any influence of the paid side. And then there's this paid side that says, hey, we can monetize this work by turning into an affiliate and getting paid on a CPA basis. But then there's also, and also, hey, Kuru, you should come do banner ads with us, or you should sponsor our newsletter. So there's, we evaluate those two different things, those methodologies differently. And so we work with a, an affiliate agency to kind of manage that program for us. And then any of those other kind of paid pitches, they go right into our director of paid opportunities and she's evaluating and prioritizing based on the opportunities that she sees in front of her and says, oh, well, this is a. Based on their metrics, this looks like a best opportunity. We're going to go ahead and try this as a new experiment. If it works, we'll lean into it. Yeah. Right. So the organic stuff still happens from time to time. We don't do much. Those things happen. We're constantly seeding product with influencers and others to make it more likely than will be mentioned when those types of articles get written. Um, we constantly reach out for folks that have authored those articles to try and say, "Hey, did you know the crew exists?" Like. Next time you update this this article, you should consider including us. We're happy to send you a free pair of shoes, just to try to make sure that you know that we're for real. Yeah. You know, we're a legitimate company that does solve these kinds of foot pain issues. So it's it's partly a, a lot of these different channels and these methodologies are trying to peacefully coexist, right? It's a PR opportunity. It's a publication opportunity. It's an influencer opportunity. I and mean, there's just so much crossover. It's like this giant blurb of stuff related to media. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that um,
1: works really well. We've,
0: we've grown the affiliate channel very aggressively by focusing on the right types of partners yeah. and partnerships. It's it's a really healthy side of the business for us today.
1: Well, that, that works really well when you have a product that actually solves a problem too. Because <laughs> let's just say you were selling fashionable shoes. It's a lot harder to put content pieces together because, well, is it a running shoe? Is it a lifestyle shoe? What makes it best? It's going to be highly subjective. But when you have something that solves a specific problem or multiple problems for a customer, you could talk about the solution that this shoe provides. Plus, you could talk about it being stylish as well, another benefit. But when you talk about the actual problem that it solves or the solution that it is, now you're talking about, well, you could write your own articles, you could get listed on organically, you could get paid, and you're, you're meeting a customer need rather than just saying, hey, this product is, Subjectively better. So, I totally get why you would want to put more into content marketing or influencer marketing as opposed to traditional digital marketing when it comes to Facebook and social ads, which a lot of companies are getting burned on right now, which is unfortunate. But, you know, yeah. we need kind of a shift in the D2C space, especially when it comes to digital marketing spend and all that.
0: Yeah, I've, I've sensed the same thing. I mean, the world of these venture backed D C's mm-hmm. that were focused on top line growth at all costs, right? Those days are over and yet it's really, really hard to get attention as a bootstrapped, profitable, direct to consumer brand, mm-hmm. because what, what the business press focuses on is big raises going public, like these big events in a company's lifestyle or, or journey, right? And so it's, it's hard to sit and because we're private, we don't share financials. We've not yet talked about how much revenue we actually generate or what our profit margin is. And we just don't do that publicly. And so it's much, much harder to get attention in a public relations sort of way from the business press, because they're all focused on the, I keep referring to them as the DTC darlings, right? These folks that raised a bunch of money, grew like crazy. Now there's some drama at the CEO suite or the C-suite or whatever, like. Those are the stories that get written about regularly yeah, you know and about meanwhile, them. the rest of us are just kind of plugging away and doing really good business and making money yeah. and taking care of our customers and talking to them every day and finding out new ways for us to satisfy their needs. And it's kind of a frustration of mine, but we'll figure it out one day, or maybe we'll be more willing to share those financials. Yeah. And suddenly in the world, will come to know that Kuru exists. Well,
1: we've worked with some of those D2C darling type brands. And one thing that you just mentioned that is very different from... A lot of those VC-backed companies is that you're making money. A lot of them <laughs> are not making money. They're spending are money. Not. They're, there's yeah. many publicly traded companies that DTC brands that are still sure. not profitable. And I don't know where in the past like, 10, 20 years when we were just like, hey, we're going to put on a pedestal and champion these brands that are not profitable. I don't understand starting a business to not be profitable. If you're raising that money, whether it's in tech or in D C, and you have a vision to be profitable eventually, and maybe you're unprofitable for a couple quarters or a couple of years because you're raising or you're acquiring. But there's so many companies that are just have never been profitable. And have no yeah. plans to ever be profitable, like a WeWork or something like that. And there's D 2 C brands that are just now flopping because if they don't get that next round of VC funding, they basically have to go out of business. And yeah, their branding yeah. looks really cool. And their website was super cool. Right. And they got a lot of press, the ones that are going to stand the test of time are the ones that focused in focused on solving a customer problem, you know, had a strong brand and strong financials. So the people that walk out of this, or the brands that walk out of this are going to be the legacy retailers. And the D2C brands that focused on fundamentals of running a real business and a real brand, not just being yeah. like cool and the D2C darlings.
0: Preach into the choir, man. <laughs> we have these debates internally. I, some of it becomes a little bit of an interesting life cycle question, too, right? Like, I'm not going to name names, but there are big name direct to consumer brands that I'm convinced could become profitable if with a culture change or if just a different management style. Yeah. But the fact remains that they've raised at such rates that the venture backers that's not an option for them because it would mean slowing the grow. And and unless suddenly the appetite becomes, they think they can get more out of a profitable brand. And I just, I don't see that. It's kind of a death spiral of sorts, right? It's really interesting from that perspective. And so these key companies that are based on the coast and really expensive, (laughs) it's expensive to hire the right talent. It's expensive to have retail footprints. It's expensive to have office space there. Like these are big challenges. You know, we're a small little company based in Salt Lake City that's been literally been profitable every year except one of the history of the company. Love it. And that one was 2019 when I happened to join at the end of 2019. And so we've got a great track record and and we're not raising, we're not interested in raising, but I think getting a little bit of, you know, maybe it's just finding the right public relations firm that can help us craft that story in a way that would be a palatable with the right hook and the right angle for for the business media to cover.
1: I don't know. We'll see where yeah. it goes. Or maybe you don't even need to go down that road and just continue to grow the yeah. business organically. If you're growing every year, that's yeah. that's that's a plus, you know? A lot better than some brands that are not profitable at all or companies that are not profitable. At... Hey, listen, Sean, anything else you wanted to cover today? Because I think we covered a lot and I, I really appreciate you joining the podcast and hopefully we could have you on again soon.
0: Oh, yeah, no, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a great conversation. Thanks
1: for putting up with my ramblings. (laughs) I love it. lots of different
0: directions and it was a really fun conversation. So thanks, John. For
1: sure. Yeah, I'll be in touch, especially if we end up implementing EOS. I might have some questions for you.
0: Yeah, happy to to dig in (laughs) anytime.
1: All right. Thank you.